Two more quick updates uh, while we're in the update mode here. One is this morning, we have the privilege and honor of having Pastor Luis with us from uh, Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, one of our ministry partners. Many of you have traveled down to Mexico. You've done ministry with Open Doors Church, or your kids have, perhaps. And so he is up here dropping his daughter off for a three-month internship in Wheaton. So it's an honor and a privilege to have him with us, uh, both of them with us this morning. Um, and we're grateful for that. And the second update is that our air conditioner is broken. And so <laughs> I found out last night that this room, uh, the air conditioner in here is, is not working. The lobby is. And so we're trying to keep that moving. But if it gets a little still and stuffy in here, if you feel like you're going to go over, like go out and sit in the lobby for a while or something. So I apologize for that. That is not ideal. But um, at least we weren't, it's not the Saturday night service. I heard that was really hot last night. So, yeah. Um, we are going to continue today in our study of this series entitled A Faith That Finishes. And we're looking at Peter's second letter to the church scattered throughout Asia Minor. And as Peter writes this letter, as he communicates with the church, I think you'll pick up on this. There's this sense of urgency, this sense of purpose with which he writes. Which, again, that, that's very typical of Peter, but you kind of feel like it's heightened in here. In part because I think Peter understands and knows that this is going to be the last time that he has the, the uh, privilege of encouraging and instructing these followers of Jesus. And so you can almost hear Peter as he writes this, sort of looking at the church and saying, listen to me, look at me, I want you to hear this, this is really important. And the reality is for a lot of us, right, we know that moment because we also understand our human propensity to forget. Like I, I, if those of you who know me well know that I am a forgetful person. In fact, like oftentimes when I leave my office at the end of the day, the first time I leave is, is not the last time I leave. Like I'm usually like three quarters of the way to the car when I realize I don't have my keys or my phone is on my desk or my wallet's not there or some book I needed to take whatever it is. Back in the day, in the student ministry office, I worked in there for 10 years. Now, if somebody does that, if they leaves and realize they forgot something and return, they call it pulling a more. Um, and because I just, it's, it's how I am. When Cherry sends me to the grocery store, I need you to get these five things. By the time I've got there, it's, it's only three that I can remember, right? So we text it now so that it's like written documentation of these things. And we all, we humans, we are prone to forget. Scientists have actually studied what, what causes, what, what results in us forgetting. And they've really identified two sort of primary sources. So outside of like a medical issue like dementia, there's, there's two things that have a tendency to create forgetfulness in us. The first is that they called decay. And by that they mean that there's some habit or pattern that you have typically done that you either no longer need or have stopped doing. So, uh, for example, I, a couple years ago in our house, we were installing all new trim around our doors and baseboard and all that sort of stuff. And so I, I learned how to do it. I practiced at it and, and became fairly capable. I'm, I'm far from professional, but was able to do that. So I learned the tricks and got it all going. And then just a week ago, my brother-in-law, who's moving, said, hey, could you come help us install this trim? And I was like, sure, I'd be happy to. And I went to do it, and I almost had to, like, completely relearn it. It's like it came on quicker this time, but I hadn't used it in two years. And so those skills had kind of like 
fallen off. That's, that's kind of the decay source of forgetfulness. The second source, the, the scientists call interference. And I think this is the one that we're perhaps more accustomed to. It's, it's more or less distraction. Something or someone else occupies the mental energy that we need in order to remember something and, and we forget. So when I'm leaving the office, I start thinking about what I need to tell Sherry when I get home or what I wanna pick up on the way or I get ahead of myself and in getting ahead of myself, I forget what I'm doing right there in that moment. Like I need keys to turn on my car, whatever it is. We get distracted, we, there's interference that causes us to forget. I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing for this sermon. I was thinking about the impact of these last 14 months on our lives spiritually or at least specifically on my life and I think many of us would identify that we've experienced at times and in various ways seasons of decay seasons of things when like my small group met regularly in person we we prayed together and we opened up God's word together and we did life together and that they kind of fell by the wayside and so something that was a real pattern in my life began to not happen as regularly or in the same way and and I was experiencing seasons of decay. And certainly, I think most of us would say there's been plenty over the last 14 months that has served as interference, that served as a distraction from our primary cause, even just the idea if, if, if and I don't know if this was only me, probably not, you are all far more spiritual than I am, but like when the online services were going, right? And I'm like sitting, I'm there, and then it's like the toaster oven dings, and my waffle's done, and it's like you're kind of living in between two worlds, and I found myself not as tuned in to as I wanted to be, to what I normally would be. And I'll tell you, there's been moments over these, this season where I feel like my um, calling to live out the kingdom vision of Jesus in this world where I've gotten distracted, where, there's, where I've become forgetful, whether that was as a result of decay or interference for one reason or another, it can happen and you have to be reoriented back to that purpose and, and maybe you can relate to that. So today I want to turn into 2 Peter. We're going to look at the second half of the first chapter, beginning at verse 12. And we want to look at what Peter is instructing the church with here. Verse 12. This is, uh, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you'll do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, 
you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I want to begin today by, by considering and looking together at, at Peter's uh, parting reminder. It's a parting reminder. I, uh, we're all right now, and I know some of our families this morning aren't here because this is graduation season. Because their kids today are going to graduate from high school. Several have already celebrated graduations from college. And, um, and this is a season when we are accustomed to somebody having the opportunity to look at a group of people and to be able to speak sort of what we might call last words. Like they're entering into a new season of life. They're entering into a new venture. And before you go, before you take this step, I want to share this with you. In fact, just this evening, Pastor Gretchen is going to be out here on the front lawn with graduating students from Batavia High School, their families for uh, Batavia High School's baccalaureate service. And she's going to look at them and she's going to share. She say, I want, as I have these 10 or 15 minutes and this group of people together because they're entering into a whole new season of life, I want to share this message with you. I want to give you these last words. I also uh, think about um, experiences I've had with family. My grandpa is, is 95 years old. Um, a couple years ago, he, he fell and broke his hip. And we were sort of told by the medical professionals at the time that often in this stage of life, if somebody has this injury, it's, it's sort of the beginning of the end, they said. In addition to that, they said his, his heart, uh, he had congestive heart failure. And so we're kind of given this window of three to six months ago. And, and he's like, this is three and a half years ago now. Um, and so every Christmas... As we gather together in this way too fall, uh, small family room, there's like 40 of us in there. We're packed around. Grandpa's in his rocking chair. He'll always sort of like tug on one of us and say, I want to say something. Because in his mind, you know, he's thinking this might be the last chance with my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids to speak to them. And I want to share something. I want to give them, I want to give them last words. And he always says, I'm a proud old man. That's how he starts. As he looks across his his family, but he wants to share some with because he's not sure he's going to get another chance. Although he keeps getting more chances, like it's <laughs> it's, it's losing its impact a little bit. But, um, Peter here begins by saying, "So I will always remind you of these things." But what things? What is it that Peter's reminding the followers of Jesus with? What's well, what he's just said in verse three? Earlier in this chapter, he reminds them his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. In verse 10, just a few verses earlier, therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Peter is reminding, he starts his letter by reminding the church of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And he's saying to them, look, this reality, these things about Jesus, this is to be the driving force, the defining force of your life. He's saying, in, in light of who Jesus is, confirm your calling. Notice three things about this reminder. First, from Peter's perspective, he understands that this is a needed reminder. It's a needed reminder. And we're going to, we'll dive into this further next weekend. 
But Peter is intentionally and specifically addressing a threat to the church. And that threat is specific is, is, a, is a false teaching that is beginning to take hold and spread among the churches. And, and at the core of this teaching was that the, the return of Christ, the idea that he's going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom is, is never going to happen. It's not going to, it's, it's that this experience that we have right now, this version of the kingdom of God, this is all there is, and this is all there's ever going to be. He names this more specifically in, in the third chapter of Second Peter. He says this way, he says, above all, this is verse three and four, you must understand that in the last days, so when Peter uses that phrase, last days, he sees that, he understands that as the season between when uh, Christ ascended and went into heaven, when Jesus ascended, and when he's coming again. He's like, this is a definitive window that we have. He doesn't mean like, um, moments before Jesus returns. He means this window. In the last days, he says, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they'll say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Or in other words, this is it. This is all there is. There's not going to be a day when Jesus comes back. There's, there's no final victory that we have to look forward to. There's no defeat of evil. There's no ultimate judgment. He's saying, don't bother living your life in view of a future that is never going to happen. The apostles are just, in, 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 the, in Peter's words, these false teachers are accusing the apostles of just spinning a cleverly devised story, he says in, in verse 16. And Peter's saying, no. He's saying, don't, don't believe it. He said, let me remind you again from the very first times, if you go back in Acts, read this, from the very first time that we preached the gospel, we preached a Christ who came, who became one of us. We preached the life that he lived. We preached that he died on a cross and that he rose from the dead and that he ascended into heaven and that he's coming back. He said, from the very first moment, we, we've told you exactly what's going to happen. And when he comes back, he's going to fulfill his promises. So what we experience in part in the kingdom of God now, imperfectly, unfulfilled, we will one day experience in full. So it's a needed reminder. Additionally, in Peter's mind, this is an urgent reminder. It's an urgent reminder. Peter, is, his urgency here is twofold. I think most obviously, Peter recognized and identified that, that his time is short. He understands, as he says, I know I will soon put aside the tent of this body. He understands that, that the execution at the hand of Nero is, is, is close. So in light of that, he's writing to the church and he says, listen to me. I have something I got to get right with you. I have, I have to make sure that you know this and that you understand this. Don't lose sight, Peter says, of what I've told you. He says, because I know that you know it. In fact, you're already firmly established in it. But I also think perhaps even more importantly, Peter, Peter's urgency is, is he's reminding the church of this reality of the return of Christ, not because of, of what he is facing, but rather because of what they are facing. 
This is why he talks about them confirming their sense of calling and election. And so by that, he means that I want you to live with urgency. I want you to understand the urgency of, of what this season should evoke in us. Because in his mind, he's, this ends one of two ways. Either one day I am going to die, and when I do, I will meet Jesus. Or I'm going to be alive, and Jesus is going to return to usher in his kingdom. Either way, in Peter's view, with those two outcomes in mind, we as the church should live with a sense of urgency. We should live with an understanding that there, I have a window, it's limited, and I want to use it, I want to fulfill this calling that God has in my life. I want to love others in the way that Jesus loved others. I want to share his message. I want to be committed to his truth. Peter says you should live with this sense of urgency. He's saying it matters, and it matters right now. And then thirdly, this is a lasting reminder in Peter's mind. It needs to be a lasting reminder. In verse 15, Peter says this. He says, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And how does Peter accomplish that? How, how will the followers of Jesus be able to remind each other of these things? When Peter is gone, we, we of course have the benefit of his letters to the church being preserved and we can read them and we can talk about them and we can process them and, and learn from them. But I think more than that, I think Peter actually has in mind one of the fundamental roles that we are to play in each other's lives as the body of Christ. That one of the fundamental aspects of what we do in, in space like this, what you do in your small groups and what you do in Christian community is that we point each other to Jesus for the specific purpose of reminding each other of why we're here and what we've been called to. In fact, on the flip side of that, one of the dangers of, of isolation is my mind is, is forgetfulness, is, is that we lose sight of that. One of the reasons that we gather together regularly, one of the reasons that, that we meet and that we talk and that we pray and that we worship is in order to point us back to Jesus because we have given the specific and the sacred purpose of reminding each other. And that is not just me to you. That is you to me. That is you to each other. This is, this is a part of our job, is that we point each other to Jesus so that we remember what he said. We remember who he is and what he's called us to. It's meant to be a lasting reminder. So, Peter, in offering these, party words, these parting words, this parting reminder, he begins to kind of bolster his, his conviction, and he does so in a couple ways. The first is that he, he cites a personal witness. He cites a personal witness. So back in verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories, which is what they've been accused of, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came, from him, came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. 
So Peter tells the story. He tells his story. And if we can try to place ourselves, imagine for a moment being the church gathered together, hearing this letter written for the very first time. It's being read out loud to the church. You're, you're processing it in real time. There's intensifying persecution. You may even be aware of the fact that, that these are Peter's last words. And if you are hearing sort of two stories, two narratives along this line, one that says, hey, this is it, and, and this is all there is, so maybe dial back this, this sense of urgency because this is all there's ever going to be, and one that says, no, there's going to be a day, and Jesus is going to come, and he's going to return, and he's going to set things right, and he's, he's going to restore his people, I think it's fair to say you might be wrestling with, well, how do we know? How do we know which of these we are to believe? And to Peter, Peter speaks into that and he says, because I've seen it. Because I have seen the glorified Christ. When I was a youth pastor in Wheaton, I, um, I had the opportunity when the Narnia movies were being released. The, the producers, and, and um, as a part of kind of the promotion of those movies, they invited a group of pastors and youth pastors to come and see a early release of the movie. And there were some of the different influencers who had who were a part of the program and um, shared some of their process and talked about studying Lewis and all this sort of thing. And, and then they showed it to us and we did exactly what they would hope they would do. You know, we went out and were like, you got to go see this movie. It was fantastic. And people asked me, well, did they get the story right? Did they follow the book? I'm like, yeah, they got the story right. It was right along the line. And one of the, the questions that everybody wanted to know was, did they get Aslan right? Did, was Aslan like this, you know, or was it cheesy? I was like, no, I, th- I think that I really think they, they got it right. And how do I know? Because I saw it. Because I was there. I witnessed it firsthand. I could tell him what he looked like and how he acted. See, Peter here in these verses, he is referring to an experience that's recorded throughout Scripture known as the transfiguration. And Peter was an eyewitness to it. It's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the transfiguration. It happens shortly after Peter has that moment with Jesus when Jesus says to him, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the the son of the living God. And Jesus says, this is exactly right. So this is Matthew's account of this. This is Matthew chapter 17. This This is pretty wild. Verse one, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured, which that's the Greek word that we translate to mean like metamorphosis, like a butterfly. He's transformed. He's transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this, this, this to be fair, the transfiguration, is a, this is a whole other sermon. 
And, and we don't have time this morning to unpack all of this. But just for our purposes here today, th th this is just full of these like biblical hyperlinks, if you will. They're taking us back to these people in these moments in the Old Testament. And it's essentially saying it's all been pointing us to Jesus. So why is Jesus is standing here with, with Moses and Elijah? There's a cloud, and the, from that cloud, the voice of God speaks over Jesus. So why is, what is Peter's point in sharing this moment? It's because the transfiguration is a moment when the full, divine, glorious nature of Jesus is revealed. Where, where the limitations of the flesh that Jesus willingly took on in his, his incarnation to become one of us are transformed to reveal the fullness of who he is. And Moses is there, the one who, who gave the law to the people of Israel. And Elijah is there, one of the, the prophets, that, the great prophets that spoke God's word to Israel. And then in the midst of all of that, God the Father, from this voice in the cloud, so again, think like Mount Sinai with Moses, speaks over Jesus and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him, because everything that, that the Moses and the law was pointing to, everything that Elijah and the prophets were preaching on, it was all pointing us to Jesus. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on 2 Peter, sums it up this way. He says, put simply, the transfiguration reveals Jesus as the glorious king. And Peter was there to see it. He therefore has utter confidence that Jesus will return as the glorious king and establish his kingdom in its final and ultimate form. See, Peter was there for the early release. He, he, he saw it. He's providing an eyewitness account of the glorified Christ. He says, I saw it with my own eyes. He's there as an eyewitness uh, to give us an eyewitness account to the church so that we can share the same confidence regarding the return of Christ and the fulfillment of his kingdom. He gives it to us so that confidence that he has, that Jesus will do what he said will do, will be ours as well. But in addition to, to this personal eyewitness account, this personal testimony, Peter then also offers a, a prophetic confirmation. A prophetic confirmation. Again, back in 2 Peter now. He writes this as we pick it up in verse 19. He says, we also have, and this is again, he's, he's citing more evidence for why we should believe what it is that he's telling us. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, in addition to, as if Peter is saying, as if, if you don't believe me, right? You can almost think of this as, as like a celebrity endorsement, right? This, 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 the weight of the voice of the prophets is, has told us that this is going to happen. 
And I don't know what it is about celebrity endorsements. I don't know why that works. But even if you look at some of the salaries of the highest paid athletes in the world, like maybe a quarter of their salary is what they make playing the sport that they play. And the rest of it is what people pay them to say, this is the best laundry detergent that you can buy. Right? And we're like, okay, that's Michael Jordan thinks that's the best laundry detergent. I'm going to get that. Right? Like he seems like an expert on these things. But whatever it is, like the voice of these people lend weight to, to whatever they're selling. Here, Peter is, is taking us back to a voice, especially for people who are familiar with the Old Testament, that lends weight. And it's a weight that now has been carried, and now carries the resurrection of Jesus with it. So again, in Peter's mind, he's saying to the people, don't forget what they told us about the suffering Messiah what they told us about what he would do and, and the death that he would die and the life that would be raised. He's saying, don't forget that that's all happened. That's all unfolded just as it, so this weight that it carries. And he's saying the prophets, even I saw it in the transfiguration. I'm giving you personal eyewitness testimony to it. But beyond that, the prophets told us how things end. Their testimony bears even more weight because their words have been validated by the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying, you know this to be a reliable source. That reference that, that he talks about here, he says, until the day dawns. The Old Testament prophets would talk about this idea of the day as the day of the Lord. The prophets in, would, would use that reference, and when they talked to him, when they told the people, to, to be ready for the day of the Lord, it was spoken in a way that was received both as a warning and as a promise or as hope. It's that time when God intervenes in human history decisively in order to save his people and to judge his enemies. It's, it's a time when, when the slave is going to be set free and the injustice is going to be overturned and the marginalized are going to be lifted up and, and, and when God is going to call to account those who have abused power or put people down or neglected and denied his name, the prophets would talk about the day of the Lord and it would inspire hope and it would evoke fear. Paul uses this same imagery in, in Romans chapter 13. We won't turn there today for the sake of time, but he's, he's teaching us as the followers of Jesus to to be prepared for, to be ready to live as those who are in the light of day. So he says, there's going to be a day. And when the morning star, that's a, that's a reference to Jesus, will rise. And he's saying, when that day comes, our Messiah is going to usher in, he's going to restore his kingdom in full. We will see him in his unveiled kingly glory. He's going to restore justice. He's going to gather to himself those who have placed their faith in Jesus. He's going to defeat evil. And then he says, live in view of that day. Church, live in view of that day. This is more, and again, this is more for Peter than his eyewitness testimony. This is more than the confirmation of the promise. He says, this is the very voice of God. Notice how he ends this section. He says, the prophets didn't make this up. I'm not making these up. These are the words of God. Again, to quote Douglas Moo, he says, in the darkness of this present world, God casts light on his purpose and plan 
And so enables believers to live as those who are in the day. This is the message that Peter wants the church to understand. When he's looking at him, he says, look, I have, I have very little time with you. I recognize that I was, this is my last opportunity to speak words of instruction and encouragement into the church. And he says, when I do so, I want you to live as those who are in the day. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to just, I want to leave you with a couple of questions to just kind of process this text this morning. I think the first question that I wrestled with this week, and, and maybe you do too as you hear this, is to ask myself, what narrative am I living in? I think there's so many narratives that seek primary placing in our lives. And Peter's asking them the church. He's saying there's an alternative story that it's being told to you. It's not true, but it's being told to you. What narrative am I living in? Secondly, he says this. He says, what is, my, what is our sense of urgency? Do, do I understand this season and the role that I play in this? Because I think in Peter's view, now matters. We, that we have a job to do. There's a purpose in our role here, and it's, it's sacred. It's urgent. And he wants the church to reflect that. This is my window. This is the, this is the opportunity I have. It's one of two ways. Either I'm gone someday, or Jesus returns. But it's limited, one way or the other. And so he wants the church to live with urgency. And then thirdly, I think it, 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 it requires us to ask the question, who has the authority? I love the way Peter ends this last chapter when he just brings it all back. He says, again, like, this isn't the word of the prophets. This isn't just my personal eyewitness testimony saying this is the word of God. What, what has the authority in my life to direct or guide how I live my life? And in Peter's view, that is found wholly and entirely in one place. The authoritative word of God. I, I, it's saying you can trust it. You can believe it. It's purposeful. And then I think lastly, it, it requires us asking the question, who am I reminding and who's reminding me? I think Peter's giving us a specific job as the church in the lives of each other. Part of my role with all of you is to remind you. Part of your role with me is to remind me. Part of your role with the person sitting next to you, across the row from you, down the aisle from you, is to remind them. Part of your role with your small group or your co-worker or, or anywhere that you share the bond of Christ is to remind them who Jesus is and the job he's given us to do in this moment. Who's reminding you and who are you reminding? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity again to look at, at Peter's just impassioned word to the church. Lord, a word that, that for him, just he feels this sense of urgency to deliver. Lord, I pray that we would receive it, that we would understand it. Lord, that we would live as those in the day, aware that in this window of time, you have given us a job to do. And may we take seriously the sacred, sacred responsibility of pointing each other to you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.